<clears throat> Last week, Pastor Ron spoke on the Swiss reformer, Heinrich Bullinger. Today, I have the privilege of speaking on John Calvin. And you may be familiar with Calvin due to the modern, very modern, uh, categorical use of the terms Calvinism or Calvinist. But aside from all that, today I'm going to cover John Calvin's life. Um, next week, I'll talk about Calvin's theology, which you may find not so distinctly Calvinistic. As we talk about uh, Calvin's theology next week, you're going to find out that it's not as Calvinistic as you thought. <laughs> um, I'll leave it at that. Uh, John Calvin is arguably the most important Protestant theologian of all time. In fact, Calvin is seen by many as the greatest influence on the church since the first century, since the, the people you see in the Bible. Apart from the biblical authors themselves, Calvin stands as one of the most influential ministers of the word that the world has ever seen. Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's successor, revered him as the most able interpreter of scripture in the church. And with that, when he would call Martin Luther or speak about Martin Luther, he would simply label him as the theologian because he was just the theologian. That's how excellent he was in his theology and the clarity of his theology. You fast forward to men like uh, Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon said that Calvin... Uh, propounded the truth more clearly than any other man that ever breathed, knew more of Scripture, and explained it more clearly. So you see this ongoing characteristic about John Calvin, which was how he clearly explained doctrine and biblical truths. John Calvin was born on July 10th, 1509, in a place called Noyon. I hope I mastered the pronunciation. It's a French pronunciation. Noyon is about six, 60 miles northeast of, northeast of Paris. And his father, Gerard Calvin, uh, held legal office in the service of the Roman Catholic bishops of Noyon. He was a member of the professional class and therefore wanted his son to enter the church as well. This was a, a high status when it came to a career. By the time Calvin was born, check this out. Martin Luther was already 26 years old. So you can see in the timeline um, you know, how young Calvin was in comparison to, to Martin Luther and where he was in the timeline of uh, the great magisterial reformers. <clears throat> but uh, again, Martin Luther was already 26 years old uh, by 1509, and already he was teaching at Wittenberg. Uh, uh, Zwingli was only two months younger than Luther, so he was already active in the Reformation. Uh, Philip Melanchthon was 12 years older than Calvin, so Calvin was the young guy. Uh, Henry VIII ascended to the English throne in, to the English throne in the year that uh, Calvin was born. And by 1517, when Luther posted his 95 Theses, Calvin was only eight years old. Okay, so oftentimes we think about Calvin and we think about the Reformation and we immediately think of men like Calvin. But he was only eight when uh, the thesis was posted. And so it's important to note that because oftentimes we mistake the Reformation as being rooted in John Calvin and his theology. Uh, when in fact, there were already a first generation of reformers. 
in the first generation, you have men like Luther, Melanchthon, Martin Bucer, Zwingli, Bullinger. These men have already reformed more than a decade by the time Calvin comes in. And Calvin is somewhere between the first generation and the second generation of reformers. So he's not quite the second generation, but he's like right there, somewhere in the middle, a little bit more towards the second generation of reformers. Anyway, uh, moving on, Calvin's father used his influence as a notary in the church to obtain for his son a position at Noyon Cathedral when Calvin was 11. Uh, and the income helped to fund Calvin's education. Calvin was privately tutored before being sent to Paris at the age of 14 to study theology at the university. He first attended the College de la Marc, um, then the College de Montague, where he received the equivalent of his Masters of Arts in 1528 at the unusually young age of 17. I'm, what am I, 32, Joy? I'm 32, and I'm, I'm not even halfway. <laughs> um, there he was immersed in the principles of the Renaissance. Um, he was getting uh, uh, taught through the method of, uh, of humanism or humanistic methods of uh, education and scholarship as well. In God's providence, some of Calvin's fundamental instruction was given by the brilliant Latin scholar, Cordier. Uh, Cordier was known as the top scholar uh, in relation to Latin and rhetoric. Okay, so rhetoric was apparently very important uh, in their time. And the fact that Calvin sat under the best rhetoricians it's an important factor because further on in Calvin's life, we see Calvin being known for his excellent writing ability and his clear articulation. At about the same time as he received his MA, Calvin's father changed his mind about his son's future, which many believe that Gerard, Calvin's father, fell into a conflict with the Bishop of Noyon. And this falling out with the church made him want to redirect his son towards a different career choice. So... Something personal happened, and he told his son, come on, let's get out of here, uh, that sort of thing. Gerard directed his son from theology to studying law at the University of Orléans. It was here that Calvin learned Greek and developed his powers of analysis and rhetoric. Not unhelpful skills, right, for someone who was eventually going to be preaching and teaching reformed doctrine. With a year, within a year, Calvin was sufficiently advanced to begin teaching other scholars. He was young and learned. But in 1531, Calvin's father unexpectedly died. Now, what is interesting about this is that there isn't much writing about how Calvin dealt with the death of his father. In fact, there isn't much writing about how Calvin felt about anything. Now, you think about if you think about Martin Luther, and you read about Martin Luther and all the stuff that's out there on Martin Luther, I mean, we know what the guy's thinking even when we don't want to know what the guy's thinking sometimes. And uh, on the contrary, uh, Calvin uh, didn't speak much about himself. Calvin was, first of all, Calvin was shy and really didn't want to, he didn't want the focus to be on him. Uh, his theology might have played a big part in that. 
all of his theological writing barely contained anything regarding his personal experience. I mean, you might find certain things, and it's funny because you, you, won't, you won't find it in his own personal autobiography or anything like that because he doesn't have that. Um, you might find a hint of how he feels about something, uh, maybe by opening one of his commentaries, maybe in the introduction of the commentary, but you barely find anything written by him speaking about him. Moving on, after his father died, Calvin, at the age of 21 years old, moved back to Paris to pursue his great love, which was uh, the study of classical literature. And he would later return to Burgess, where he completed his legal studies and received his doctor, doctor of law degree in 1532. At this point, he's released from his father's governance, right? which was probably a big influence on Calvin and the decisions that Calvin would make career-wise. Being that Calvin's father was gone, this is an opportunity for Calvin to spread his wings as a humanist, uh, publishing his first and only humanist work at the age of 23. It was a book, it was a commentary. This was Calvin's first book. It wasn't, it wasn't religious in any sense. It was a commentary on uh, Seneca's writing. Seneca was a Roman Stoic philosopher, and Calvin was uh, somewhat of a student of, of Seneca. He, he studied his works. He wrote his first book, commenting on one of Seneca's writings entitled De Clementia, which is another word of saying, on mercy. Uh, and this is important to think about because Calvin interacting with a Stoic philosopher uh, would probably mean that John Calvin was influenced by this Stoic philosopher. Now we think of Stoicism when you say, oh, that's not Christian in any sense. Well, not so fast, you critic you. Um, he, realistically speaking, when you read secular books, when you read philosophers, um, you know, the moment that you find something unbiblical doesn't mean you got to shut it off and throw it away and say that there's nothing in there that is true. Um, and especially for John Calvin. John Calvin knew that whatever is true is God's. doesn't belong to this one individual who may distort it in any sense. Um, and it's not to say that everything that this Stoic philosopher wrote was, uh, you know, just something you throw away. Um, but... Many, many theologians who study John Calvin, they would, they would easily see how John Calvin was influenced by Seneca in some sense. Uh, some theologians have observed that John Calvin, especially in writing a commentary on Seneca's work, may have been influenced significantly by uh, Seneca's stoicism, right, in some way. And this is reasonable, especially since Calvin was very rational and he set aside his feelings when it came to expressing the truth, right? You, you don't read John Calvin and say, wow, what a passionate, emotional man. I mean, you, you're just reading, like if you're reading a law book, you're reading straightforward facts. Um, and for John Calvin, that, that is important, right? When it comes to finding out what God has to say about something, we don't want something who's emotionally, someone writing about it who's emotionally imbalanced, right? Or taking positions that aligned more with his background and his uh, feelings and things like that. Um, he, you know, 
those who desire to know what God has to say, and men like John Calvin who are commenting on what God has to say, can really appreciate um, that sort of influence, especially in the work and writings of John Calvin. Um, now, uh, moving on, uh, the year 1532, uh, this was a significant year for John Calvin, not only because he received his doctors in law, but because he had been exposed to some of Martin Luther's teachings, which were by then widely circulated. Uh, his own cousin, Pierre Robert, uh, his, this is a French uh, pronunciation of his last name, Oliviton, Oliviton. Uh, he's, he, his cousin, has been attracted to Lutheran teaching, and Calvin had studied it along his cousin's side for a period. Uh, and so you see, finally, uh, someone like Martin Luther coming across uh, what was happening in the ongoing Reformation, predominantly what Martin Luther was writing. Moving on, um, what about Calvin's conversion? At what point did he come to know the Lord personally? Uh, there is no reference in any of Calvin's writing that mentions a person that may have been used as an agent in Calvin's conversion. No one really came to preach the gospel to him. As far as we know, um, we don't, there's no record of someone specifically. Or even a definite moment when that happened, but to our benefit, we do have something recorded from Calvin's own pen regarding his salvation, and it actually comes from his commentary on the Psalms, which was written in 1557. And in the preface, he says a few words about, you know, his coming to the Lord. Uh, he says this, and I quote, To this pursuit of the study of law, I endeavored faithfully to apply myself in obedience to the will of my Father, but God, by the secret guidance of his providence, at length gave me a different direction to my course. At first, since I was too obstinately devoted to the superstitions of popery to be easily extricated from so profound an abyss of mire, God, by a sudden conversion, subdued and brought my mind to a teachable frame, which was more hardened in such matters that might have been expected from one at my early period of life. Having thus received some taste and knowledge of true goodness, I was immediately inflamed with so intense a desire to make progress therein, that although I did not altogether leave off other studies, I yet pursued them with less ardor. End quote. So, uh, many scholars debate from all sides of the historical and even the religious spectrum as to the occasion or the speed of Calvin's conversion you know, by reading that, you can't really tell, you know, is he talking about one moment in his life that, that it hit him and it was, it was this miracle that he experienced of, of being converted, or if this was a, a long process. It doesn't seem to be something that happened rapidly, honestly, although there are some evidences of a longer preparatory period. His conversion is nothing like Luther's. Luther was dramatic and seemed to always be described as this one pivotal moment in Luther's life. Unlike Luther, it seemed that for Calvin, the word of God simply made sense to him, and his heart became more teachable to the truths of God, God's word. No huge story, 
you know, it wasn't this big thing that happened. It was that he read it, he understood it, his heart believed it, and he said, you know what, I'm going to keep searching more and I'm going to keep reading and believing. And honestly, I can relate to that experience. My, my uh, conversion story is not big. It's like, oh, yeah, that's true, and that was it. <laughs> we can all say, I'm sorry, what we can say is that once it had occurred, as far as the salvation in uh, Calvin's life, there was no looking back. And you see all the work that Calvin put in afterward, which was evidence of fruit, that he was passionate for the glory of God. Calvin embraced the Protestant teachings that accorded with the word of God, and his life was never again the same after that. These truths of the Protestant faith were so real to Calvin and so complete was his transformation that when his friend, Nicholas Kopp, who was the rector of the University of Paris, when he went up to deliver an address calling for reformation uh, to the church there at that place in Paris, um, many people began to think that that speech was written by Calvin. The passion behind it, the truths behind it, it just sounded like something that Calvin would write. And so... Uh, uh, this is just evidence that Calvin, at least at this point in uh, 1533, was already, this is like a year later, he's already like solid in his faith. Um, so you see this example with Nicholas Kopp giving this, um, this speech, uh, this piece uh, begging for reformation to happen in his city. What happens once this person starts speaking and calling the church to turn and to reform back to biblical truths. Well, it usually doesn't end good. When that type of stuff happens, they see this as a rebellion. And not only did Nicholas Kopp have to flee the town due to this Protestant message that they were bringing, but Calvin himself had to escape too. And he was lowered by sheets from a window and escaped the city like a cartoon. And he came down, he snuck out of his mom's house kind of thing through the lowering uh, of, of sheets. Um, Calvin had to disguise himself as, as a manual laborer. And as a result, Calvin was forced to flee Paris before he could be arrested. And he withdrew to the estate of Louis du Tillet, a man who was sympathetic to the Reformation cause. He, he fled with him. And there... Uh, with this person, Luis uh, Tillet, he had access to an extensive theological library. Calvin read the Bible along with the writings of the church fathers, most notably Augustine. And you can tell, obviously, in, when you read John Calvin, uh, the Augustinian influence in, uh, in Calvin. And by hard work, Genius and grace, Calvin was becoming this excellent self-taught theologian. And in 1534, Calvin moved to Basel, Switzerland, which had become a Protestant stronghold in order to study by himself in solitude. And there in Basel, he wrote the first edition of what would become his theological magnum opus. What do you think this theological magnum opus was? Anybody know what he wrote, this masterpiece? Institutes. I was going to point it out. Okay. Yeah, his institutes, yes. Uh, Calvin's institutes. Uh, this, was, this was a 
first edition, this, this masterpiece went through like five editions. Um, interestingly, Calvin began this work at the age of 25. At the age of 25, I, I was not mature. Let's just put it that way <laughs> in any way. Um, and if you do the math, this was only one year after his conversion. Uh, and he, he was able to do writing, theological writing, uh, at such a degree that we still, I mean, we're still teething off of what he, he wrote in the Institutes. Anyway, it was then published when he was 26. So it finally came out when, it was, when he was 26. It went through many revisions, as I said before. The final copy that we have from Calvin is the fifth edition, uh, which came out in 1559. And in it, you know, if you read it, it's a pretty much a systematic theology uh, or an outline of the Protestant faith. It's definitely worth, worth reading. On 1536, Calvin decided to move to Strasbourg in southwest Germany to further his studies as a quiet scholar. There's nothing more that Calvin wanted than to just be by himself in his books, doing his theology. That was the dream for Calvin. Unfortunately, that's not... That's not how it, how it happened afterward. Um, you know, he, he, he moved to Germany to further his studies as a quiet scholar, but a war between Francis I and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, prevented him from taking a straight route. He was trying to get there. He couldn't get there because of what was going on. So Calvin had, had to take a detour, and he ended up taking a detour towards Geneva, where he did not plan to stay. He only, he only intended to spend one night in Geneva. But when he entered the city, he was immediately recognized as the author of the Institute, like a, like a famous person in the paparazzi. You know, he, he's walking in Geneva, and they already recognize him. I don't know how, but apparently they did. Um, those who recognized him were people who were sympathetic to the Reformation. Thank God it wasn't the other way around. People who were not sympathetic to the Reformation could have probably have him arrested. But those who recognized him were people who were sympathetic to uh, what was going on with the Reformation. And with great urgency, they took him to meet William Farrell, who had led the Protestant movement in Geneva for about 10 years already. And Geneva had recently voted to leave the Roman Catholic Church and become a Reformation city, but it was still in desperate need for a teacher who can articulate uh, the Reformed theology that they, that they needed. And Calvin, of course, was such a great theologian and writer and, and a person who can articulate the faith well. And so Pharrell, in a fiery manner, challenged Calvin to take up the task. Right? He's saying, Calvin, you have to stay here in Geneva. I know you just wanted to come for one night because this is a detour, but you have to stay here. Okay? And Calvin replied that his heart was set on private study and not public ministry. He just wanted to be there with his little cup and his book and just study. He didn't want to expand. He wanted peace with him and his books. And it was in that very moment that as Calvin spoke those words, Pharrell threatened him. <laughs> this is the way Calvin tells the story. Pharrell, 
He says, Pharrell, who burned with an extraordinary zeal to advance the gospel, immediately strained every nerve to detain me. And after having learned that my heart was set upon devoting myself to private studies, for which I wished to keep myself free from other pursuits, and finding that he gained nothing by entreaties, he proceeded to utter an imprecation, uh, which was like a threat or a curse, that God would curse my retirement, and that the tranquility of the studies which I sought, if I should withdraw and refuse to give assistance, when the necessity was so, ur uh, so urgent. By this imprecation, I was so stricken with terror that I de uh, desisted from the journey which I had undertaken. In other words, William Farrell, in a zeal for God's glory, said to Calvin, may God damn your tranquility of private studies as you refuse to help in this urgent situation. Yeah, he's strong. It was there that Calvin saw this sort of like Elijah-like threat from God. And, and Calvin knew where he was coming from. It's one of those things, if you think about it. Imagine a person with such great gifts and the church being in need. And they're just like, no, I just want to keep these gifts to myself and have my own private study and just relax and grow in my knowledge. <laughs> you know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that that's how Calvin was, but that's how it seemed. And I think Calvin felt that great conviction. Uh, William Farrell was not playing. He was really expressing to Calvin the urgent need for Calvin to stay there. And so Calvin felt that, Calvin felt like God himself had reached out and grabbed him by the neck. And with that, Calvin knew that it was necessary for him to change his plans and to stay in Geneva. Calvin then began his ministry in Geneva First as a lecturer, right, he started small, then eventually as a pastor. Along with Pharrell, he began, to, he began the task of bringing the life and practice of the church in accordance with the teaching of Scripture. That was the goal, to go out there, to be faithful to the Word of God in his lecturing and in his preaching. Uh, and again, this was the goal for all the reformers, to reform the church away from the authority of man and their ideas and putting them under the authority of the word of God. And considering all that had corrupted the church prior to the Reformation, there was a lot of undoing that many of these reformers had to work on. And you can probably relate. If you come from a background, you know, maybe you, you grew up in a certain kind of church setting where there was a lot of false things going on. You know, when you finally come to good, sound teaching in a good, healthy church, you see that even within you, and the way that you think even, uh, there's a lot of undoing that has to be done within you. And this was pretty much the work of the reformers. They were not trying to do away with the church that existed. They wanted to reform it. They wanted to inform it more and align it more with the word of God. <clears throat> um, and again, uh, Practically speaking, when it comes to restoring a whole city from the corruptions of unbiblical church life, it's easy to attempt uh, to fix these issues by pragmatic ways. You say, let's start doing this, let's start doing that. Yet Calvin rightly understood that the solution to fix the corruption that came from bad theology was not 
dependent on man's strength and his ideas and his abilities or even man's creativity. But the solution to this corruption was to come from faithful teaching of the word of God. Imagine that. You see corruption and someone says, what are we going to do? And someone says, well, we're going to begin expository preaching. And you're going to look at him like, really? Like this corruption and you're going to, your solution is expository preaching? And John Calvin's like, yeah, that, that's the way. And that was the plan for John Calvin. <clears throat> now let's fast forward, right? John Calvin is in there. He's doing his ministry. What does this look like? What does Geneva look like with a person like John Calvin leading the church? Okay? Just imagine the scene in Geneva, right? As the sun rises on the Lord's Day morning, you see from afar the great St. Pierre Cathedral, high and above the rooftops of the city. This cathedral stands out. And as you walk in, you open those doors, the ceiling rises so high and above the sanctuary. Oh, I got some photos here. There you go. And as you walk in, the ceiling rises so high and above the sanctuary, and in it you see something happening, which is the divine worship service that was led by John Calvin. What was once a place of false worship became a place where God was most clearly displayed as the word of God became the center of all that was in their worship. Citizens of Geneva gathered there, along with many others who had fled from the tyranny of their Roman-trenched homelands. Refugees also gathered from Scotland and England, having escaped martyrdom, and others from Europe and also Germany and Italy. And they're coming here to Geneva. People of all sorts made their way into this cathedral. And as they entered in, their eyes are drawn to the great pulpit elevated far above the stone floor. There it hangs, right, suspended. And this former Roman Catholic place is now a fortress of biblical truth. Imagine that. A place where the exposition of the word is of first importance. That's a big change. And people from all over the place came to see this and to experience this. And as the service begins, the guest would notice that only the word of God was sung. What they were singing was God's word, not their own words. The psalms are set to meter. And they made the psalms singable in such a way that people were singing the psalms, the word of God. And it was set for congregational singing. Imagine, for a long time, you sat in the audience and all you saw was a performance. All of a sudden, you enter into Calvin's Geneva, and it was the people's voices that were uh, doing the congregational singing. And what reigned in this service was the regulative principle of worship, a worship that was not based on man's inventions, right? A bunch of people sitting there, how are we going to make this service exciting? No, it was based on the principle of sola scriptura, that what the Bible says is what we're going to do. And where the Bible says nothing about it, we don't do nothing about it. That was the principle of Calvin's worship. And as the service progresses, the people would sing out of the depths of their hearts. 
The days of vain elements of worship services were over. Now the people, being well taught by Reformed theology, were able to gather and raise their voices to magnify the Lord. Now after a time in that service of reading the word, there were parts of the liturgy that they would read the word, they would, cons- they would confess their sins from any deviation from the word, they prayed the word, they sang praises from the word, and then finally the much-anticipated time comes. Calvin rises up into the pulpit to expound the word of God. This is very different from medieval church life. Let me take a sip. Now, keep in mind that in Calvin's day, the primary issue of the hour was the authority in the church. Papal edicts and councils, along with the church's traditions, had taken precedence over biblical truth. But Calvin believed that the Bible alone should regulate church life, not popes, councils, or Rome's traditions. Calvin believed that the Bible was the authoritative, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Now, if that is the case, then the question that follows should be, that since man nor tradition should be the final authority, then how does the word of God then hold its place in the life of the church as ruling authority? How does the book rule people? How does scripture rule people? Well, Calvin believed that when the Bible is expounded and it's preached, it will do its work. It will bind the consciences of men. It will uh, conform them into the church that God is calling them to be. And with that said, it makes sense that Calvin's deeply embedded convictions about the supreme authority of the Bible demanded an elevated view of the pulpit. Calvin believed that when the Bible was opened and rightly explained, the sovereignty of God was directly exerted over the congregation. And because of this, the minister's chief mandate, his main, uh, main job, was to preach the word and to preach the word according to God's intention. Preach the word according to what God uh, intended uh, in each verse and in each passage. Calvin said this, he said, and I quote, A rule is prescribed to all God's servants that they bring not their own inventions, but simply deliver as from hand to hand what they have received from God. That's it. There's no need to go up there and entertain. Therefore, for Calvin, handling the scriptures was a sacred thing. He firmly believed that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Have you ever wondered or have you ever desired an experience with God? When you open up the Bible and the word is being preached, right? God is as real there as you are hearing the words coming out of the person's mouth. Because if it's God's words, then God's words is as much God that God is within his nature. His words are God. And so when the word is explained faithfully, you're hearing from God. And this is what Calvin believed, that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Now, here's an interesting fact. Often while Calvin would preach, hearts were astounded and souls were penetrated. And under conviction and, chal- and, under conviction and being challenged by Calvin's expository message, 
some of the refugees were so stirred up by the word of God that some of them even chose to return back to their native homes, preferring to face the persecution of their land so that they themselves could plant churches there in those hostile locations for the sake of God's word to be brought to those places. And so some of those people were in heavy conviction as they heard God's word being faithfully preached. You know, they, they, they found refuge and comfort in Geneva, but they were convicted, like, I got to bring this back to my hometown. And in that, we see that Calvin's expository preaching was that powerful, and the truth of God's word exposited was that forceful and that penetrating. That's what always does the job. Among the reforms, or the many reforms that took place and that Calvin himself implemented, there was another reform, which was the exercise of church discipline at the communion table. Isn't that interesting? There was a, a fencing of the Lord's table that Calvin was zealous about. Unfortunately, this church discipline at the communion table did not sit well with many Geneva citizens, many of whom themselves were living sinful lives. There were many who lived licentiously, and even many leaders of the city would come and attend the church, and they lived licentiously. They did what they wanted because they thought that the gospel freed them from any need to live holy. Now, on Easter Sunday, April 23rd, 1538, Calvin actually refused to administer communion to certain leading people who were living in open sin. These men were known as the Libertines. Now, here's something interesting. The Libertines, they had a kind of strange theology that they formulated themselves. For the Libertines, the communion of saints meant the common possession of goods, but it also meant the common possessions of of houses and bodies and even the common possession of wives. They thought that what it, mean, what it meant to have communion with each other was to share everything, including your wives. Um, so they practiced adultery and indulged in sexual promiscuity in the name of Christian freedom. And at the same time, they would openly claim the right to partake at the Lord's table. They would say, well, I'm a Christian and I'm, you know, I, I should partake at the Lord's table. The crisis of communion came to this explosion in 1553. A libertine uh, named Berthelier uh, was forbidden by the consistory, consistory, consistory of the church to eat the Lord's Supper, but appealed the decision uh, to the council of the city, which overturned the ruling. In other words, the city allowed him to take the Lord's Supper. And during this time, the city had ecclesiastical role. And so this troubled Calvin, who would not think of yielding to the state the rights of excommunication, nor of admitting a libertine to come and eat at the Lord's table. For Calvin, the issue, as always, was the glory of Christ. He, he didn't care about the rules of the land. I mean, he did, he respected it. But when it came to profaning what God had uh, reserved only for uh, Christians in good standing. Uh, he, he didn't want any, anything to do with that. And so Calvin wrote to uh, Pierre Verret, which was the head of the city council. He wrote this. He says, I, Calvin, took an oath that I had resolved rather to meet death 
than profane so shamefully the holy supper of the Lord. My ministry is abandoned if I suffer the authority of the consistory to be trampled upon and extend the supper of Christ to open scoffers. I should rather die a hundred times than subject Christ to such foul mockery. Then after writing this, the big day came of testing. The next Lord's Day came. And on that Sunday, the Libertines were present there at the, at the service, and they were ready to partake of the Lord's Supper. I can't imagine how Calvin was feeling up there, you know, preaching, getting through the service, and then he sees them in the back, like, I have to, you know, put a blind eye to them as I preach this sermon. I mean, that must have been stressful. But he went on, and Calvin was there before the table, uh, and he saw them there in the back. And it was a critical moment, if you think about it, for the Reformed faith in Geneva. John Calvin was a leader in the Reformed faith. How he was going to handle this uh, would be an example for the whole Protestant world. But for Calvin, he was only concerned not for what the whole Reformed world was thinking about. He was concerned with an audience of one. He was thinking about what pleased God. And so after the sermon had been preached and the prayers had been offered and Calvin went from his pulpit down and went right before the elements, right there at the communion table. He had the bread and the wine. They were already set, and he was now ready to distribute them to the congregation. Then on a quick sudden, a rush had begun, and the Libertines were on their way to the communion table. Guess what happened? You guys excited? I'm so nervous about what's about to happen. <laughs> All of a sudden, right, right there in the communion table, the libertines rushed towards the front with swords. They were going to demand. Just imagine, think about the context. They, by law, according to the, the law, right, they, the city agreed that they could do it. And so they were defending their rights. So they're coming into the scene and say, I have a right to the table. They even came with swords. What did Calvin do? Calvin flung his arms around the sacraments, swinging like that. <laughs> flung his arms around the sacraments as if to protect them from sacrilege. While his voice rang through the building. You can hear Calvin's yell throughout the cathedral. And he yelled this. He says, these hands you may crush. In other words, you can cut them off if you have to. These arms you may lop off. My life you may take. My blood is yours. You may shed it, but you shall never force me to give you holy things to be profaned and dishonor the table of my God. Wow, Calvin, <laughs> my hero. Uh, in Theodore, check this out. In Theodore Beza's biography of Calvin, he speaks on this incident, and he says that after this incident, the sacred ordinance was, you know, this is afterwards. Every time the church would celebrate the Lord's Supper, he says that uh, the sacred ordinance was celebrated with a profound silence and under solemn awe in all present, as if the deity himself had been visible among them. Apparently, this incident affected them so much that they saw God's zeal for the table there. And so it makes me think when we take the Lord's Supper, 
you know, do we acknowledge the presence of Christ in that? Um, and then we see that the zeal um, that was evident in Calvin uh, was, was an evidence of that. Um, all right, let me, let me start uh, closing out here. The, obviously, the tension for Calvin and Pharrell grew in that city. You know, there were rumors and, and things like that. Uh, they were not wanted, and they were eventually, at some point, forced out of Geneva. Calvin fled to Strasbourg, France, where he had intended to go two years earlier. So here, Calvin fled the city. Again, his purpose was to escape from the public eye at this point. Wanted to be alone. But Strasbourg's chief reformer, Martin Butzer, insisted that Calvin must come and continue the public pulpit ministry that he started. In fact, Martin Butzer, Martin Butzer threatened him the same way Will uh, Farrell did. Uh, and apparently it worked. <laughs> There's this thing about threatening Calvin. Uh, and he'll just do it. <laughs> However, in this time... This time that he had away, Calvin was given time and freedom to write. Calvin wrote his commentaries on the epistles to the Romans. Uh, he revised the institutes. Uh, they were translated in French. At this time, he wrote what was considered the greatest apologetic for the Reformation, a reply to uh, Sadoletto. Uh, Sadoletto had written an open letter to the people of Geneva once Calvin had, had left, inviting them to go back to Catholicism, and Calvin, Calvin wrote back a rebuttal. So this time away, Calvin was able to do a lot. Uh, Calvin got married. Uh, he got married uh, to a widow of two children. So he was able to experience that. Uh, after Calvin had spent three happy years out there in, in Strasbourg, um, Again, Calvin was to uh, return as their pastor back in Geneva. Uh, while, while Calvin was gone, interestingly, in Geneva, the church had deteriorated a little bit. Even the political situation deteriorated. So Calvin's theology and preaching was very influential and helpful uh, for that city. Again, uh, Calvin had no intention of returning uh, in a letter to Pharrell, uh, he said regarding going back to Geneva, I would rather submit to death a hundred times than to that cross of, of being in Geneva. Uh, but at some point, Calvin eventually changes his mind despite the dangers that, that he experienced in Geneva. Part of this was his convictions. Um, you know, his, he eventually saw that God was using him out there, and so he... Uh, he went back to pastor in Geneva. And here's an interesting thing. After that three-year period when he was gone from Geneva, uh, when he went back to Geneva, he was, he was such a believer in the power of the word of God that he got right back to the pulpit and continued from the next verse that he stopped three years ago. And so he was so faithful to the word of God and trusted and dependent on the word of God that he just continued on the very next verse. This continuation is known as the Lectio Continua. This is where we get that doctrine, that theology of, of a, sort of a con continuous pattern of uh, preaching the word and letting the word do its work as you, 
as you uh, continue it verse by verse. Um, quickly, uh, Calvin's pastoral period in this second, second term, if you will, you can kind of divide it in two periods. The first couple of years were years of opposition. He endured a lot of resistance and difficulties. Opposition came from people who've been living there years before him, you know, this patriotic sort of uh, defense against Calvin. Uh, a lot of that was there. Calvin was always treated as a foreigner. Just imagine someone not from your town coming into your town and telling you what to do. That's what, that's the kind of thing that Calvin was facing. Uh, they disliked Calvin because he was a foreigner. Uh, the whole situation with the Libertines. Um, some of y'all may be familiar with Michael Servetus. Michael Servetus was someone who a lot of people today, they bring up Michael Servetus um, when they want to discredit Calvin because apparently Calvin had him, or they would say that Calvin had him uh, burned at the stake for having false theology. That's not the whole story. Um, in fact, Calvin had written to Servetus. Calvin had done everything in his power to have the authorities uh, make the punishment as light as possible. He gave him a couple of chances. I don't have time to go through every detail of it. Uh, but oftentimes people, especially today, who want to discredit Calvin uh, because either they hate uh, reform theology or anything connected to Calvin, they'll bring up Michael Servetus. Um, Calvin faced many trials, being committed to ministry and pastoring the church in Geneva. He was there for 25 years pastoring them. He would preach twice on Sundays, twice every day on alternate weeks. He devoted 200 sermons on the book of Deuteronomy, 150 sermons on the book of Job, 353 sermons to the book of Isaiah, 86 sermons to the epistles of the, uh, the Corinthian epistles, and so on and so forth. I mean, the guy, they say there's... He, he's estimated to preaching about 4,000 sermons, and we only have like 1,000-something sermons uh, that we can have access to, but he, he's known for preaching about 4,000 sermons in his life. Uh, he would do this in a city with so much immorality that they even had a law that a man could only have one mistress, as if, like, you know, that was a way to restrict this kind of lifestyle, and that just goes to show how bad the city was. There were no antibiotics. Medicine wasn't at its peak. The city was filled with so much hatred, suffering, and hardships. Uh, imagine Calvin receiving a letter from a mother who had lost a son because her son was burned at the stake for believing something that Calvin taught. I mean, just imagine the pressure of that in Calvin's ministry, just having that on his back and still holding on to what he believed was going to bring about salvation and change in the city, uh, which was locking into faithful exposition to the word of God. Uh, Calvin lost his son only at two weeks after his birth. And Calvin's wife also died in 1549 after only nine years of marriage. Throughout his life, he had terrible migraines. He had inflamed lungs. He was room-bound 
1558 for several months. In 1559, he could hardly speak. He would spit blood. He suffered from hemorrhoids, gout, and in later years, kidney stones. In 1564, um, he wrote to his physicians about this experience of having to pass some of these kidney stones naturally. Um, I mean, there was just no, nothing to help him to uh, alleviate him from the pain. Not to mention all the uh, opposition that he faced in Geneva. Concluding thoughts here. The draining opposition from Geneva finally calmed down. And the last nine years of Calvin's life could be, could be described as years of support. It was sort of ending well. At this point, he established the Geneva Academy in 1559, where he had uh, private schools, elementary level introduction uh, in these schools, and a public school offering more advanced studies in biblical languages and theology for training pastors, lawyers, and doctors. So uh, his ministry was, was of much use. You see the flourishing of it. Um, in 1564, Calvin became seriously ill, yet his faithfulness to the preach word was so serious that he had people take him from his bed on a stretcher to the pulpit so that he can preach the next verse. That's Calvin for you. Um, Calvin preached his, uh, for the last time at St. Pierre's Cathedral on Sunday, February 6th, and by April, it was obvious that he did not have long to live, and so Calvin, at the age of 50, war, 54, passes away, such a young age, and it was probably because of all the stress and all the things that he carried on his shoulders. Uh, Calvin cautioned his, the fellow reformers at the time that the battles of the Reformation were not over, but only beginning. Calvin said, you will have troubles when God shall have called me away, but take courage and fortify yourselves, for God will make use of his church and will uh, maintain it and assure you that he will protect it. And again, with that, he passes the torch from his hands to the other reformers. Calvin dies May 27th, 1564, in the arms of Theodore Beza, his successor, and his last words were, how long, O Lord? He was quoting words of scripture uh, from Psalm 79 and Psalm 89. This was the life of Calvin. Calvin uh, had strict orders to be buried in an unmarked grave so that uh, no one would give the glory to him, but that all the glory would go to God alone. Uh, this was the life of Calvin. A lot of work, a lot of... Uh, sacrifice, but we've reaped the benefit from it. That concludes the uh, teaching on John Calvin. Next week, we'll talk about the theology of Calvin and his contribution to the pool of the doctrines that make up Reformed orthodoxy. So I look forward to uh, uh, talking about the theology of Calvin. So join us next week. Uh, let me go ahead and pray. Father, we uh, thank you that in your providence you have used men like John Calvin in defending and preserving the biblical doctrines that are so key to our faith. You've never let your people stay in utter darkness. You have always had your church, and it is by your word and your spirit that you've kept us, Lord, and we thank you that you've kept us from generation to generation. And like Calvin said, God will make use of the church and will maintain it, 
and he assures that he will protect it. And Lord, we thank you for that. And to that end, we ask the same thing. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all.